teach your children well. Things cost me so Nash and Young. That's exactly what all of us, including the Jefferson County Public School Board member, Linda Duncan, wants to do. Teach our children well. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio WFMP 106.5 FM, and you are listening to Solutions Balance, a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. I'm Jim Johnson, here with co-host Jamie McMillan. Following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Linda Duncan. Linda Duncan earned her master's degree and master's degree from the University of Kentucky and graduated from the University of Louisville's Rank 1 Administration and Supervision Program. She taught at Southern High School and was a teacher and assistant principal at Fairdale High School. She has served two terms as the at-large director of the Kentucky School Board Association and is a member of the National School Board Association. Linda Duncan, welcome to Solutions of Violence. Thank you, Jim. Glad to be here. Okay, we're glad to have you. So, Lenny, let's get started. For those of us concerned about public education, the years 2021 and 2022 have been tumultuous, to say the least. School board meetings across the country have turned into political battlegrounds. The Jefferson County Public School Board meetings are no exception. Large groups of parents and political activists are attending public school board meetings demanding that COVID mask mandates be lifted, that in-class learning and return, and that public schools stop teaching critical race theory. Let's begin with a critical race theory issue. The University of Louisville Law Professor Cedric Powell on Solutions to Balance explained that critical race theory has to do with the history of litigation. Professor Powell explains that, quote, critical race theory has to do with structural inequality and systematic racism and the continuing effect of racism in this society through its laws, its institutions, and practices, end quote. Cedric Powell explains that critical race theory is taught in upper-level university history classes and in law school, not in high school. So Linda Duncan, are teachers in the Jefferson County public school system teaching critical race theory? No, we are not teaching critical race theory. Our attempt is to teach the facts of history. And I I know our teachers are very conscientious about presenting uh, that factual discourse and trying to keep opinions out. I'm sure that some opinions do slip in, but I can tell you, I have not had complaints from parents who have listened to their children complain about this or, or express any kind of concern on this particular issue in terms of relating to or trying to influence the history of African Americans in this country or how we look at Native Americans in this country. I have not had any any complaints coming to me on those topics. So the Kentucky State Legislature recently passed SB1, Senate Bill 1, sponsored by John Schnickel and other Republicans, now law impedes the teaching of African-American history, Native American history, and the teaching of the LBGDQ and women's rights movement in our public and parochial schools. SB1 is a comprehensive bill, but American Civil Liberties article titled, quote, Statement Regarding New Classroom Censorship Law, SB1, end quote, penned by Samuel Crankshaw, explains quote, Senate Bill 1, a bill to center discussions between teachers and students and hold teachers criminally liable for any violations, end quote. The Crankshaw article goes on to state, quote, Senate Bill 1, 
will not only censor students and teachers, but will also dictate what materials teachers use to cover history. As Governor Andy Beshear noted in his veto message, quote, these texts were not selected by historians or scholars, but by a political body, end quote. One of the required texts is Ronald Reagan's 1964 political campaign speech, quote, a time for choosing, end quote. So first, is government censorship of the kind embedded in SB1 constitutional? Well, I think the intent was to embed it and no, that's really not a constitutional effort. But in order to make sure that that law is followed, you have to have the superintendent who's supporting what is being censored and and because the superintendent's in charge of teachers' evaluations, I mean, he uh, indirectly and the principal's in charge of those. And, and uh, this bill, by the time they were finished with it, pretty much had taken all the teeth out of it. There was no way to enforce this type of censorship. And uh, I think Dr. Polio looks at this as something that might be something that's expected, but He's not monitoring this, and his principals will probably not be monitoring this. You know, again, it'll be an issue where if there are complaints from parents about what is being taught and about what their kids have had to do, then those complaints will go to the principal, and then, then at that point, it'll be looked at. But overall, enforcement was lacking in this bill, and I don't think I don't think it's going to be the issue that it's presented to be. I don't I don't think teachers will let it interfere with their teaching of the facts of history. So as a JCPS board member, do you believe politicians in Frankfurt should be the ones to dictate to JCPS teachers what they can and cannot teach in their classrooms? Or do you believe that JCPS teachers are qualified to make those curriculum decisions without help from Frankfurt? Well, the, the teachers are, are certainly qualified to make the decisions, but sometimes Frankfurt does intervene and does call our attention to certain subjects, such as civics, where there is a requirement that, that all kids pass a civics test before they graduate. And they start taking this, I think, as sophomores, and they can take it again and again until they pass it. But so in, in that sense, the legislature can do that. They can impose these things to make us pay more attention to our curriculum. But should they be dictating what we're teaching? The curriculum is decided by the SBDM Council with the input from parents and teachers. And of course, now that's been turned over to the superintendent. So the superintendent will henceforth be making the decisions about the curriculum that, that teachers use. And I think at that point, it is an issue that it, it just depends on the curriculum that they're given and that they want to follow in order to teach to the standards that are expected. Yeah, so the Kentucky State Department of Education does issue a core content social studies standards that teachers have to follow. It's a guideline, right? And it's, and it's kind of a basic baseline, right. as Dr. Shelley Thomas from UofL Teacher Education Program explains. So that is a guideline that teachers do use to inform their curriculum. Yes, and the kids are evaluated on those standards. And the, the important part is that the standards are met and the curriculum that's used will be the curriculum that's recommended by, henceforth, the superintendent, has been in the past by the SPDM Council. So we pretty much try and follow the curriculum that supports those standards. So in a Courage Journal article penned by Oliver Kraut titled, quote, November elections, here's a rundown of who is running for a school board in Louisville. 
end quote. One of your opponents in the upcoming school board election, Gregory Pacelli, stated, I am running because JCPS is failing its students in the areas of academic achievement and school safety, end quote. In addition, Pacelli states, quote, additionally, parents feel that their concerns are not being addressed by the current school board makeup. End quote. Do you agree with Pacelli? Is JCPS failing its students in the area of academic achievement and school safety? Is the JCPS board not addressing the concerns of the majority of parents whose children attend JCPS schools? I completely disagree with him concerning failing academic achievement of our students. We just finished a year with the highest graduation rate that we've had. It's just under 81% graduation rate and the highest college and career ready rate that we've had, which is 70%, which is, I think, quite remarkable given the times that, that we're moving through. We also are very intentional about working with our early learners, although we need more resources into our early learning programs. We are very intentional about that. Our kids come in at 42% this past year, uh, kindergarten ready. And at the end of the year, by the end of the year, 99.3% of those kids were ready for first grade. So the start is there. The finish is there. What happens in between is what we need the resources to work on, because that's when kids really begin to feel the impact of poverty. And uh, we uh, have to double down on resources, which we've been doing, and offer everything that we can to support them, support their medical needs, their nutritional needs, their family needs, wraparound services type of, of things that we offer for families. And uh, the again, the emphasis on early childhood, trying to make sure that as many kids as, as we can get exposed and into early childhood programs. Our, our early childhood programs, our kindergarten ready rate was higher than the general kindergarten garden ready rate. Uh, so they do have an impact and we just need to get more kids in that early start and, and get them on track. But the impact of poverty and if you're looking at average test scores, it's really difficult to compare our two groups. We have our system in kids that qualify for free and reduced lunch and the, the kids that don't qualify for free and reduced lunch. Those, and they make up about 33% of our population. The ones who don't qualify for free and reduced lunch are 65% proficient, which means 65% of them are scoring 80% or better on tests. On reading and math tests. It's the kids that are on free and reduced lunch or that qualify for free and reduced lunch that present the biggest challenges, and they're sitting at 35% proficient according to our, our latest numbers. That gap between those who are on free and reduced lunch and those who are not is, is huge, 30-point gap, and it includes a lot of our kids coming in who don't even speak English, and they're being tested and they're, they're learning English. As they learn English, they will be tested, but they're trying to learn English as well as content along the way. And we have 14,000 of those students now. So, so that growing population influences those proficiency scores. And I've said for, for quite a while, measuring proficiency, average proficiency is not a good measure for this district because we have such such varying groups and, and the influence of, of our learners that are learning English is tremendous on that average score. So I disagree with the, the failing concept. I think we're doing we're doing as well as we can. We're doing extremely well with our group not in poverty. Our kids in poverty need more and more resources, which we have designated 
and under our new student assignment plan. As far as safety in our schools, I think one of the remarkable things is that our students have been so good at letting us know when these guns are brought into buildings. We don't have a good system right now for sifting out guns coming into buildings. And that's something that the superintendent is talking about and that we're talking about, how we can put in technology that will help us detect weapons that are brought into our schools and, and systems for doing that. When you have high schools with 50 or more doors from the outside, Trying to get everybody to go into one door is our big challenge, but we will continue to work on that. I think getting our police force started so that we will be the ones who respond to gun threats or to these kinds of uh, threats of violence in our buildings. Our force will be close by, will be nearby. They won't be right in the buildings, which some people are happy about. I'm not happy about. I would love to have an officer in every building so that we have immediate steps away kind of response if something happens. But they will be there and they will be able to to take care of an, an armed threat. And I think uh, in that direction, we're moving in the right direction with the building of our own police force. We're starting with 30, getting 155 officers who are willing to serve in this role is going to be a big undertaking for us. But eventually, we hope to reach that and we're going to try our best to expand what we have we have 30 now and we will expand that but that you know that's not the only thing that keeps the building safe uh, one thing in texas that, that everybody should have registered on everybody is that lock the classroom doors once once your class starts and kids are in there be sure that door is locked from the outside if that shooter had not been able to unlock a classroom door and go in there, then we wouldn't have had this situation. We want the buildings locked. We want the buildings secured. And we have we've put a lot of money into securing our entrances and making these vestibules that people have to, to travel through in order to get in. But in a case like that, an outside door was, he, he came in an outside door and opened it and went right in. So the locking of doors is huge in our safety plan and we must be vigilant in what we do there to protect our students and i think our schools have done a, a really a pretty good job of trying to lock out those threats it's just the ones that walk in with the guns uh, that are a challenge for us right now because we don't have the technology to screen every every student coming in as far as parents and parent, I'm certainly a fan of parent voice and I support the law change that expanded SBDM council members to three. I think now we'll have three parents on the SBDM councils. But, you know, being accessible to parents is extremely important for us as representatives. I don't have any problem. I had hundreds of emails and input from parents during the pandemic, during the masking issues and the NTI issues hundreds and hundreds of emails from parents. So they have access and we do get to hear them and we do get to evaluate what they're saying. But parent voice doesn't always trump CDC guidelines. And we had to make decisions there about what was best for our kids health-wise and for their families health-wise. So yeah, parent voice is huge. I think it's important. I think it's important for a representative to be accessible and interactive with parents as I am. So the same Courage Journal article published by Robert Kraut explains that Matthew Singleton, yet another one of your JCPS board opponents, is concerned about raising school test scores and improving school safety. 
but answered no to the question concerning, quote, the replacement of education with indoctrination. What's your take on the replacement of education with indoctrination? Are JCPS teachers indoctrinating students by teaching Native American and African American history? Well, again, I, I'm not in every classroom and I can't. What I have to, to rely on is the reporting of these type of incidents. I have my own grandchildren in school. I've had uh, four of them. One graduated uh, last year, but I have three now in, in school. So I hear and see the work that they do, and I listen to what others talk about, but I have not seen evidence of this indoctrination. I know how easily it can happen. I know just comments here and there. I think I had a complaint two years ago from a parent whose child was in a classroom where the political views were different. The teacher and the teachers made some references politically that were offensive to the student. And the parent let me know. And then, uh, you know, I, I just directed that back to the principal to let the principal know some of the comments that were made. But that's the best route for anybody if if they think that's going on, if they feel if they look at the materials and look at the work that our kids are doing, if they feel that, that it is over the line in terms of presenting an opinion rather than the facts about something, parents need to contact the, the principal of the school and uh, let the principal know what's going on. So then the principal has an opportunity to speak with the, the teacher. I'm telling you, we we really are trying our best to be fact-oriented in our teaching and our, our classrooms. And I think as long as we stay with the facts, then that other part won't happen. So SB 1, Senate Bill 1, also removes the power of the school-based decision-making councils and places that authority in the hands of the superintendent. Before SB 1, SBDM councils had the authority to hire new principals. Now, only superintendents have that power. Do you believe the SBDM Council should have the power to hire principals? Why will Marty Polio and the JCPS administration continue to support the authority SBDM Councils and their right to hire new principals? Well, what we were running into, SBDM Councils would pick a principal and then if the principal wasn't especially effective or did not do the job in terms of, of improving scores, that accountability fell back on the superintendent. So he was he was being held responsible for, and the district was being held responsible for, a decision that an SBDM council made about who should lead a school. And if we're, of course, the legislature gave him the authority on that and gave him the authority on curriculum decisions. And I think primarily because that accountability comes back to the superintendent. If the school system is teaching, if, if schools are teaching different curriculum or uh, if they're picking principals that are not effective, all of that falls back on the superintendent. And I think he does need a voice in being able to, to name principals. Now, I think under this law and, and the way we do that, it's kind of a cooperative effort there. The He sends names that he's approved and then they, they interview and from the group that he thinks are qualified and then they can choose from those. And in that sense, I think they get they get a voice also. But there has to be some level of accountability once once a principal is named. And right now SBDM councils have no accountability. They they pick a principal and then if things go awry, oh well, they're ready to pick the next one and it doesn't really affect them. So I think uh, I think probably that was a good change. 
and as long as there's some consultation in there so that uh, the SBDM council does have some voice in who gets chosen. So your opponent in the upcoming JCPS board election, Greg Bacchetti, supports SB1 and believes only superintendents should have the authority to hire principals. Part of Greg uh, Petuschetti's platform has to do with giving parents more input in terms of how local schools are run. Before SB1, uh, SBDM councils allowed only two voting parents. SB1 adds an additional voting parent to the SBDM councils. What do you say to Greg Petuschetti supporters concerning the SBDM councils? Well, I think it's a good move that we've expanded that by one parent. Here's my question mark, though. When we have uh, teachers represented on there, teachers have a connection then to other teachers through they can report and they have a formal connection to other teachers about if they want feedback from other teachers. It's not just those two teachers sitting on there or those three teachers. It's the network of teachers that get to to speak through them. Parents on the SBDM Council need more formal network. Right now, PTA, I'm not sure that PTA is the best vehicle to give that input to parents, but there needs to be a, a more formal vehicle for parents to use to organize their thoughts and their recommendations and their ideas and their feedback and send that to the three parents that are on there so that we don't have just three parents giving opinions on the SBDM Council, but we have have a network that has uh, given fe- feedback concerning these things. So um, certainly supportive of more parents on SBDM Council. I do think that voices is, is very important, but it's kind of ironic that you want SBDM Council authority, more authority for parents, but you support taking the authority away for the superintendent to pick the principal. So it's, it's kind of an ironic wish there. But Jefferson County Public School Systems have gone through quite a bit of change lately. They have changed the student assignment plan. The new assignment plan will give students living in Louisville's West End a choice. They can either continue to take the school bus to a mostly white school in the suburbs, or they can choose to attend their own reside school in their neighborhood. April 18, 2022, the Louisville Courier Journal published an op-ed titled, quote, JCPS promise of Brown v. Board of Education is slipping away, end quote. The article, penned by the University of Louisville political science professor Dr. Dewey Clayton, Clayton states polio is really offering black students in the West End a Hobbesian choice, taking what is available or nothing at all. But why do black students alone bear the task of desegregating JCPS schools? End quote. Clayton believes that the new assignment plan will resegregate the Jefferson County Public School System. Then Clayton states, quote, this absence of interaction between white students and students of color leads to negative stereotypes and misconceptions about their behavior and status. If the JCPS Student assignment plan will resegregate the JCPS population and end an opportunity for racial diversity, considering the fact that the research demonstrates that the segregated schools create vision between the mostly white majority and minority of colors. Shouldn't JCPS come up with a student assignment plan that would create a diverse population? That's the plan that we're in right now, where we send students out to the suburbs, send our, our West End students out to the suburbs. That's the plan. We're we're in right now. And what has it done? Over time, it's evolved into sending students out to diversify schools that are really now very diverse anyway. If you look at neighborhoods 
schools are really starting, are really reflecting the neighborhoods. And there is quite a bit of diversity in our neighborhoods, especially like where I live, a South End neighborhood. Tremendous diversity right within my own neighborhood. So, so sending students out to diversify our schools is really not even necessary at this point because you can't say this is a basically white community. It, it really is, is not. It's very diverse. But, you know, the comments about diversity and the value of diversity, where were those comments when we were creating schools of color? Because there are no, there are no, there is no uh, diversity as such in our schools of color. And yet nobody was arguing against that and saying how bad this would be for people if we created schools of color. I think the issue here is access to resources. And I think when we first began busing, our parents, our downtown parents, were concerned that their kids did not have access to schools with resources. It wasn't that they didn't have access to white people. That, I don't think that was the big push, that they had to have their kids go to school with white kids. The, the push was to get to schools with resources, and they were willing to put their kids on buses and let them take bus, long bus rides to schools where they thought there were more resources for their kids, where they could learn better. So that was a kind of a voluntary thing at, at the first of of busing. I was here in 1975. I know how the parents viewed that. And it was not this need to get out and, and diversify the schools. It was the need to get to resources. And I think as long as in our new student assignment plan, as long as we concentrate our resources into the schools where they live and their schools will reflect the population of where they live. And as long as we concentrate our resources there, then I think it's not the same situation as it was and that a lack of diversity will not be the deciding factor for whether students achieve or don't achieve. I think having support, being able to have low teacher-pupil ratios, class ratios, being able to have experienced teachers who are actually paid more to, to work with them, I think those are the factors that are going to be the important factors. And as far as the diversity, well, we'll look for that where we can create it. And with our magnet programs, magnet schools, that's going to be the effort from now on is to make sure that they reflect the diversity of the community. The only schools that, that may not be diverse may be our West End schools because they will reflect what their neighborhoods do, just as their churches are not diverse because their churches tend to reflect where they live, where, where people con where people uh, live. So I don't think uh, the issue is being with white people. I think the issue is resources. And we are committed to pouring resources into our West End schools, to building another West End school, I'm at West End Middle School, to, to doing everything we can to allow those kids the opportunity to learn and, and achieve at the levels that are acceptable and, and enviable from other districts. Fair enough. But one of the things that concerned me here in cities where this happened, other cities where schools were resegregated over time, 
the revenue that supported the African-American schools was greatly diminished. So I'm just hoping that does not happen in Jefferson County. Well, we've made a commitment. We we made a 10-year commitment for us, and that was we put it into policy, and we've made a commitment that the board will follow this for 10 years at least. And then at that point, things may have changed. Lots of things may have changed in 10 years so that that will be reevaluated and the, and the board at that time can decide how the resources will be used. But our commitment is to support these schools. And you, I think uh, everybody has seen that with the, even the new tax increase that that was added on there, the five cents that was added on there, $52 million, $54 million devoted to supporting the needs of our students that are in our West End. There will also be changes in the JCPS magnet program. What will the changes in the magnet program mean for black students? More access for one thing. Right now, over the last several years, our participation in magnet programs from our black community has shriveled. It's gone from 14% even applied down to 10% applying to be in magnet schools. So when you say, well, why are there the percentages of African-American students so low in our uh, magnet schools? Well, when only 10% are applying and maybe all of those aren't accepted or maybe they are accepted, but 10%, that's going to automatically put you at a, a low level. So access is going to be a, a, a huge uh, opening for them, an opportunity for the, for African-Americans to be a part of this because we are intentionally wanting our magnet schools to reflect the diversity of the communities and will choose students accordingly and will actively recruit students for these magnet programs that will be located primarily uh, near them so that they it, it's even convenient for them to have. Even the new magnets that we hope to open will be convenient or conveniently located for them so that they have access. There is not going to be criteria for them to get in. So if it, it's it's going to be interest-based, if they're interested in music and there's a program, there's a magnet school devoted to music, then they apply for that program. And they, you know, like I say, if we can get more applicants in there, more African-American applicants in there, then they will have more opportunities to be a part of our magnet school programs. We also are not exiting kids from magnet programs anymore. That was such a, that's been such a, a an issue for African-American students because they would be exited. I think it was over 50% of the exits were African-American students last year. They're exited for behavior, for attendance, for maybe not achieving high enough. Not that they were bad in these things, but they weren't good enough in our magnet programs before. And good enough should not be a reason or not good enough should not be a reason for, for exiting somebody from a program. Once you take a student that child, that is your child, and you have to be committed to helping that child be successful in that school. And that's what we're that's what we're looking at. Uh, magnet schools that, that will do that, that will attract the uh, African American kids by the interest and help them be more engaged in the the work that that they're doing because it's where they want to be, and not exiting them for the reasons that have been, the kids have been exited in the past. We have no exiting other than if you create a bad discipline issue that qualifies you for being sent to alternative school. But, uh, it should be a lot more access. Magnets should, should hold a lot more access for African-American students. So JCPS plans to build, you mentioned this, two new elementary schools and one middle school 
in Louisville's West End. Tell us about these new schools, how the new schools benefit African-American students. Well, they're going to be new and state-of-the-art and full of technology, full of things that will help kids learn and go beyond what we're doing really, what, what is available for everybody right now, because these are going to be the most up-to-date uh, versions of what we're doing right now. I think that they will attract students that are serious about learning. And I think actually our the New West End schools, one of them or some of them will even attract families from away from the West End because they will want their kids to go to those schools where these things are supported. It, it will be so, so great to have new facilities and uh, just all the new equipment that will be present and allow them to feel some pride in where they're learning. And of course, the new schools will be staffed by teachers who want to be there, who are being paid extra to be there and uh, will be, we hope, engaging teachers that will offer after-school opportunities and just create an, a, an atmosphere of newness and, and renovation for the whole community. And I, I think, um, I mean, I'm excited about new schools and what they do in terms of people feeling like they're valued. And I think I'm, I'm looking forward to, to the impact that that has on our West End families. Uh, you mentioned this the test scores before, but let's get a little deeper into the, the test score issues. An article published by WDRB-TV titled, quote, JCPS test scores show little progress. Achievement gap widens among students, groups, end quote, demonstrates a persistent standardized test score gap between the mostly white students from mostly middle class families and mostly black students from mostly working class families. A quote from the WDRB article states, quote, indeed, the district's achievement gap between white and black students increased 29.4 percent this year from 28.4 percent last year. The data shows that just over 58 percent of white students scored proficient in reading and math, while only 29 percent of black students did. There has been a persistent standardized test score gap between the mostly white students from mostly middle-class families and the mostly black students from mostly working-class families. Talk about the JCPS plan for improving the standardized test score of African-American students. Will new school buildings and school choice do the trick? Or is there a need to change instruction? Perhaps diminish the student-teacher ratio? What's your thoughts? Oh, all of those. You know, the, the gap that you're talking about is we have a, a black-white gap of but we also have a, an overwhelming poverty gap where our, our kids that qualify for free reduced lunch and, and those who don't qualify for free reduced lunch, that, that is a 30-point gap in our system as well. And uh, so how do we work on that? It has to be through our early childhood programs, trying to catch kids early, expanding the centers that we have. We don't we don't have enough for all the people who want to put their kids in there. We don't have the facilities to, for the, the people who want and need to put their kids in there. So we've got to expand our facilities and, and create more of those early childhood centers. And we have to, I think, look at our laws, preschool, universal pre-K. When we say we're going to provide universal pre-K, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has to send a child to universal pre-K. So if we're going to make any headway on this, we really have to start considering when we start educating our kids because it starts early this 
gap opens up early. And if we get a good start from our African-American kids early, then we have more of, a, of an opportunity to work with them and, and to, to close that gap along the way. But I think creating centers like the Elevate Center, the Elevate Learning Center, it's essential. These are after-school programs for kids where they can go after school and get tutoring and mentoring and more instruction and mental health support. And I, I just think Elevate is a perfect example of, of a new approach that we have to take to our, our kids in supporting them after school. We're hoping that if they choose to go to school closer to home, that the schools that they choose will offer programs after school as well, where kids have more time to learn. That's the essential ingredient here, more time. And the way that we've done our busing situation where kids have to leave and go on long bus rides and then leave immediately and come home on a long bus ride, they have not had the opportunity to to get into after school programs that would help them recover learning or help them process the learning that they're they're using right now so i do think centers like elevate are are hugely important in this effort to close this achievement gap that's just one center we have another one planned in uh, a smoke town i believe but and then we want to have have one planned in newburgh but i think if the schools can assume those roles, we'll be even better off because more kids will then have access to some essential supports. And like I say, tutoring is huge. We have a tutoring program in place right now that's a, a virtual tutoring program that kids are assigned to and allowed to work on throughout the week. And we've seen some good progress, some good results from that. It's a, it's a virtual tutoring program, but it's the kids spend the time on the skills that they need to recover. And they do that three times a week. I think it's about 40 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes, three times a week. And during the school day, not after school, but during the school day. And they, we've seen some good results coming from that. We've put it in place. And in certain schools, we want it to be available to everybody. Uh, we were trying to determine how effective it would be. But the extra time on learning has to be there for the students who need that. And I think we're putting in place several things that we hope will help provide that extra time, extended time, summer programs like we're doing right now. Our summer programs have expanded considerably from 1,000 a couple of years ago to 10,000 registered this year for summer programs. So anything that we can do to give more time for kids to learn, I think will have an impact on closing this achievement gap and supporting students. I just want to say the parent is crucial in this effort. We can provide all these things uh, that we want to, all the things that we can, but if the parent doesn't show value in what the child's doing, doesn't pay attention to what the child's doing, doesn't make sure the child does his work, attends school, complies with rules. If the parent doesn't do his or her job, then it's very difficult to continue to help kids learn at a faster pace. Just very difficult. The parent has to be there. And I am so, um, I'm so hopeful that when we get our, uh, when students have the opportunity to go to school closer to home, downtown, that their parents will be able to be closer and more closely tied 
to their educations and being able to connect with their schools and see what they're doing and go there for parent conferences and be involved. I'm so hopeful that that will happen and that will help support improved achievement. You mentioned time spent in school as being important. So there was an article titled UofL Research, Gaps in Student Achievement and Discipline Go Hand in Hand, end quote, penned by Liz Schumer. Using research conducted in the 2017-2018 in the school year, quoting data from the first six weeks demonstrates that, quote, 59 suspensions for every 100 Black students, 32 suspensions for every 100 Black females. 17 suspensions for every 100 white students and eight suspensions for every 100 white female students, end quote. The data clearly demonstrates that black students make up the majority of students suspended in JCPS school system. The Schumler article also states, quote, found that when achievement gaps were wider between white and black students, so were there racial differences in suspensions and expulsions and vice versa, end quote. So they also found, quote, that when one gap decreased over a two-year period, so did the other, end quote. So the research demonstrates that when suspension rates decrease, MAP standardized test scores, MAP is a measure of academic progress, increase. How does JCPS reduce suspension rates without sacrificing safety or jeopardizing classroom structure? You know, you can tell principals to quit suspending and they can they will quit suspending and uh, so it's it's we can see suspension rates fall that way but i i have serious doubts about whether just reducing suspensions like that which will happen uh, because you you expect them to re, to suspend less serious doubts that that impacts student achievement that way i, I would love to to know the the parameters of that study because I know how we are and how efficient our principals can be in saying, okay, well, we're just not going to suspend. The issue for our schools is the behavior and how we respond to the behavior. We want to reduce offenses. That's before they become something that takes them into the area of suspension or where that that is triggered. Um, but we have to, to get involved early in student behavior. We have to listen. We have to have people in the building mental health people. We have to have people in the building who are attuned to student conversation so that they can monitor what is happening and have an understanding so they can intervene early. If we can intervene before behavior escalates, and I've seen this work effectively very well in some of our elementary schools, if we can intervene early and allow students an opportunity to, to vent or to correct whatever is, is upsetting them, then, then, then the flow is, is not interrupted. And I think it's hugely important for our teachers to be trained in that intervention and for our mental health counselors to be very much involved in that. And I've seen them doing that. It's a remarkable addition to our buildings where they have prevented so many escalations and we never have measures on that how many did you prevent we never have measures of that but we do have the results and we we can see that that, that suspensions are impacted by that now when kids cross the line and do things that harm others it's kind of too late then there has to be a consequence. But does the consequence always mean that they don't have to have academic support? See, I don't believe that the consequence has to mean that. And I think a lot of our schools have begun to use virtual options 
for when students do cross the line and have to be separated from the victims. You don't always want the want the person who's pushed you down the stairs to be sitting in class with you the next period. The discipline has to be dealt with. The consequences don't necessarily have to be in, in the form of time out of school or time away from school or time away from academics. And I think our Chromebooks have enabled us to expand our, our connection with kids so that I believe it's a way that we can keep them learning academically without sacrificing the academic portion of, of their school because of whatever happened, whatever they did to someone else. Now, the it's also important to have monitoring if you're going to use a virtual option like that. It's uh, very important to have monitoring, to have an adult assigned to a student so that that student is accountable to that adult and make sure that the work gets done. So you can you can suspend somebody and send them home with virtual work to do, remote work to do, but will they do it? If there's not a parent there who will oversee and make sure it happens, then the school needs to provide that oversight. That's been our problem. That was so much of our problem during NTI was that lack of oversight by many parents, some because they couldn't do it and some because they just weren't there to do it. I think consequences are hugely important for the victims when things happen because they don't feel very important whenever there is no consequence for something awful having been done to them. But I do think the consequences can, we can be creative in how we handle those so that our students do not sacrifice academically because of their behavior. There has been a mental health counselor added to each building, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So in terms of behavior here, a classroom management technique now being implemented in some JCPS schools calls for, quote, restorative practices, end quote. So restorative practices does not focus on punitive techniques, but requires the offering party to make amends for the damage he or she has caused. Quote, restorative practice, end quote, requires both the offended party and the offender to work together to resolve conflict. As you know, restorative practice came from the legal concept now called restorative justice. So how is restorative practice working within the Jefferson County Public School System? Do you support that concept? I think a lot of our schools have incorporated restorative practices, and um, I know a lot of them have the, a lot of the techniques involved. Uh, a lot of the teachers are trained in uh, restorative practices. I think I'm a supporter of that in terms of conflict resolution. I still think it has to be an early uh, intervention type of thing. Uh, restorative practices can, can be effective with bullying. It can be effective with intimidation and some of the, some of the violations uh, like that that uh, students experience. I don't think that restorative practice is, is a, a very effective practice when somebody's nose has been broken by somebody else and then you want the two people to sit down and talk about it. I don't think that that's what its intent was and I don't think that's how it's supposed to work. I think once the person who broke somebody else's nose returns from some consequence of some sort, then I think it's important that if the victim wants to meet with that person, that they be given the opportunity to meet with that person. And I'll tell you, I've found many situations where parents did not like the fact that their kids who were harmed were forced to come face to face with the person who harmed them. 
and then felt pressure to say, oh, everything's okay. And that was not good for those students. And I I do think we have to be careful about those kind of situations. I don't think restorative practice is a substitute for consequences. I think it is a consequence that that works at certain levels, but I don't think restorative practice works at all levels for all offenses when people have been hurt. So you mentioned students dealing with English as a second language issues. Immigrants now compose 14% of the some 100,000 JCPS student body population. So what's your plan for educating the growing immigrant population? In some of my schools in District 5, 50% of our population is immigrant population, immigrant students. So that's what I, I talk about when I say diversity, not out in our buildings. We have diversity out in our buildings. It's tremendous diversity in our schools. I think that growing population has to be dealt with through hiring more ESL teachers, more teachers who are capable of teaching kids who are coming in, have the skills, uh, kids who are coming in and trying to learn English. I think we hired 42 for this next year, and we hired uh, 11 interpreters, so we need more interpreters. I think we have to keep up with this population. We also have to keep up with their ECE needs because just because they are ESL doesn't mean they can't be a special needs as well. And I think uh, we've got to, to make sure that we keep up with identifying kids who are special needs as well as trying to learn English ESL. And all of this requires people. We have got to put more and more money into people to support our growing immigrant population. That means smaller class sizes for ESL students. When we have a bunch of ESL students, in a room, you have to have more one-on-one with the teacher. And so the the class sizes have to be smaller. And I think we have to keep paying attention to investing in teachers. Where are we going to get them? That's another issue. But right now, we need to hire as many as we can to try and meet this growing need. We also need to provide after-school programs for them and summer programs like we have right now. We have have quite a few of them enrolled in summer programs to help extend the time of learning that they have, after-school programs to help extend that learning time. I think primarily we've got to make sure that we have the people who can work with these kids and help them learn English efficiently and effectively and as, as fast as we can, because they're they're not just learning English. They're trying to learn English, and then the bell rings, and they go to math. I've seen it in classrooms where kids are, are learning sound letter association in one class, one small room, a bell rings, and they were off to math as if they were just regular students. So we have got to, to do, um, I think we need more newcomer centers. I think it's, uh, it's important to bring them in when they come in early and have all the resources developed to them and concentrate on them until they're ready to move on to uh, regular programs and outside to other schools. I firmly believe we need more newcomer centers. One of them we need is an elementary newcomer center, which I've advocated for for several years that serves grades three, four, and five, because that's the level that is most difficult for the students to learn English when they come into this country, and we need uh, support there. So let's change directions here a little bit. The Jefferson County Public School Board uh, voted to raise the property tax of Jefferson County residents by 4%. Did you support that tax increase? Why? Well, the 
the last time that well that when, two years ago i guess it was when we we added the extra nickel we added an extra nickel onto the four percent increase which was very controversial and we petitions were passed and it, it was taken to court the court determined that, the, that they didn't have enough signatures on the petitions enough legitimate signatures on the petitions to put it on the ballot so the taxpayers did not get to vote for that but anytime we go above four percent by law I, I mean i believe it should go to the voters right now i think it requires 5,000 signatures for it to go on to the voters so I believe that the extra nickel, I did not support the extra nickel at that time because we were in the middle of a pandemic and I thought it was not a good time to add that to everybody else's burden. But now we're at 4% for last year. Well, we didn't really raise the, the taxes 4% last year because we didn't have to. Every year, property assessments rise and the value of property rises. And the so that, that increases our property tax and the new property is available and that increases our taxes. And by law, we cannot exceed our last year's receipts by more than 4%. So this past year, we had to drop our rate. We had to drop the amount of money because if we had stayed with it because natural rises in assessments, we would have exceeded our 4%. So what I watch is if we're trying to, if we can get to the 4% in a natural way without having to raise the taxes. Last year, we did not have to raise the taxes, but that's not that's not always the case. But I do think the 4% is built in there to allow us to keep up with the, the needs of the district and the needs of our teachers and the needs of our staff. But it doesn't have to be by a 4% tax increase every year. The assessments help us reach that 4% level above last year's receipts. So Dr. Marty Polio is now in his second term as the superintendent of the Jefferson County Public School System. Would you support him for a third term? What part of his administration would you like to see him change? Well, actually, he did a four-year term, and then we approved him for three more years. And that was what the contract is. He he wanted three more years on the contract. So at this point, at the end of three years, we will assess what his desires are, what our desires are, and decide if uh, he continues with us or if, if he decides to do something else. So at this point, I'm, I have no problem. I'm pleased with the directions that we've gone, and uh, there are always issues that we debate and need more help on. But no, at this point, I think at the end of three years, we will evaluate what our needs are and what his needs are and make that, that determination. What would I change in, in his administration? I think I would change uh, how we compensate our administrators. And I've talked about this many times, but I'm one, you know, I'm one of seven. So, uh, but I've talked many times. I think our, our administrators need to, to go in hired at a salary and they're told what the salary is and then every year we treat them with stipends rather than this percent increase because their salary is automatically higher because they they're they're longer years they work longer years and they their degrees put them into another category and so they're automatically higher than everybody else and then what we do we just tack on four percent increases for everybody and for them it looks like we're moving into 
if if you're making a hundred and between a hundred and sixty and hundred and eighty thousand a year and you get a four percent increase, that four percent's a lot bigger increase than the person who's making fifty thousand dollars a year and that four percent. So I, I think we've got to get away from percent increases for administrators or we're gonna be looking at two hundred thousand dollar positions in central office. And I, I do believe that we need to reward them with stipends that we can grant every year and, and I think we've tried to do that. Uh, this year, we've used stipends in addition to then the 4%. So I think if I could change anything, I would change how we compensate our central office staff. I appreciate the work they do, but I'll tell you, it's a difficult task to talk to this public about their compensation at uh, nearing $200,000. One final question, Linda Duncan. Why are you the best candidate that is running for JCPS school board from District 5? Well, for the past 16 years, I've, I've worked hard to uh, represent and advocate for the students and, and uh, staff and parents of District 5, uh, calling on my own experience, 32 years in a school or 32 years in the school system, 21 as a teacher and 10 and a half as uh, an administrator. So uh, I call on that and that brings me or keeps me grounded in the reality of what school is. I know what school is. And so I have the trust, I think, of the staff. When I go into schools, they trust me. They are honest with me and they talk about uh, the issues that we're working on and they tell me their opinions. And they're not afraid to be honest because they know I've sat in their situations and I understand what they're dealing with. And I know the pits and falls of things. So I, I think they, they trust that. Our parents trust me. I get uh, many calls for guidance concerning how to navigate through this system, who to talk to. I'm able to listen to their concerns. A lot of them are disciplinary type of things, which my background is so much in discipline and I'm able to advise them and get them to the right people to help them solve problems that they're having, that their kids are having in school. And I think that's a, a valuable skill that I bring to this. I'm accessible, I'm visible to the public, and I'm not afraid to tell the truth about our system and warts and all. I'm not afraid to tell the truth about things. And especially if I see something that's, that's not right. And I will stand alone a lot of times in votes because I think some Something is not the best for students. I devote endless hours to emails and answering phone calls and returning messages. I don't think you find anybody who devotes more time to trying to reach, or reach the right decision than I will. Also, I'm very proud of the direction that we're moving. I think our graduation rate is the highest it's been. Our career college and career ready rate is the highest that it's been at uh, 70%. And I think the safety plan that we've put into place, I'm hoping hopeful that it will help stabilize our schools and reinforce the importance of locking doors. I can't say that enough to people. Lock your doors, lock your classroom doors, and lock the building doors, but especially the classroom doors. Also, uh, I'm very proud of our transitioning from forced busing into a choice-based plan where parents do have choices. It doesn't mean you always get the first choice, but, but you do have choices and you're going to get one of your choices. So I'm very proud of that. And I think all that service makes me the best candidate to continue to serve District 5. So our conversation today has been with Jefferson County Public School Board Member Linda Duncan. We want to thank Linda Duncan. We appreciate you joining us as we explore more solutions of balance. Thank you once again for sharing your time and your experience with our listeners here on WFMP Radio. 
at this point, we do have to invite anyone else who may be running for the JCPS board or running from District 5, an opponent of Linda Duncan, to appear on Solutions to Balance. We'd love to have you on. If you're interested in being on Solutions to Balance, uh, you can contact us at Solutions to Balance 18 at gmail.com. You can listen to Solutions to Balance live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choose Listen Live Now. We air Solutions to Balance on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., Wednesdays at 6 a.m. The Solutions to Balance program that features Linda Duncan will air again July 19th and 20th. Program featuring Linda Duncan will be placed in our archives. Listen via our archives. Visit us at boardradio.org. Choose Program Archives and scroll down to the Solutions to Balance program that features Linda Duncan. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. Until next time, keep peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thanks for listening.